If you watch a great horror film, and there are not that many of them, perhaps I will make one someday, and you feel tingling all over, what is going on? Is there a name for that? When you walk on a glorious beach, as I did today here on Necker Island, and that singular feeling of sand against your feet, and warm wind against your face, and a sound of glorious music joins the passive roar of the waves. What is happening? You are hearing music that isn't there. Or is it? When you hold your beloved in your arms and kiss them, first lips meet, and then more, more, and you see a vision of color, or more than that, you are on a journey through the cosmos as planets, galaxies, supernovae, beckon you to pass as you travel forward, onward to the brightest point, and you know that that is where the power of the universe wants you to go. On a more mundane level, all of the time, signals, sensory signals, are coming into your consciousness, not from outside, but from inside. Neurons are passing data to your subconscious and to your conscious, from petty aches and cellular itches to localized and general feelings of comfort. There is visceroception, perception of bodily signals arising specifically from the viscera, the heart, lungs, stomach, and bladder, along with other internal organs in the trunk of the body. And all the time you have a sense, not at all like a sense of sight or taste or smell or sound, of the position of parts of your body relative to their neighboring parts, what neurophysiologist Charles Scott Sherrington called proprioception. The same Nobel laureate physiologist also coined the term interoception and defined it as the sense of the internal state of the body. This can be both conscious and non-conscious. It encompasses the brain's process of integrating signals relayed from the body into specific subregions like the brainstem, thalamus, insula, somatosensory, and interior cingulate cortex, allowing for a nuanced representation for you of the physiological state of your body. All of which brings us to the topic of today's episode. According to Galina Sobchen of Drogobich Ivan Franko State University, Drogobich, Ukraine, Synesthesia is an original sensation that results from irritation or stimulation of any sense organ with a simultaneous sensation corresponding to another sense organ. The process of synesthesia is a reflection in the mind, in the human psyche, of the relationships of different modal characteristics of the subject and phenomena of reality, that is to say, of those aspects and properties that are involved in their basis, in the very act of perception, carried out by a complex of disparate sensor systems, sight, hearing, etc. The components of these relationships can be more than exteroceptive sensations, external sensations, but also internal, interoceptive, and proprioceptive senses. It is synesthesia, that helps to unite all aspects of perception and thinking, strengthens aesthetic perception, and gives artistic images a special force of influence. Continuing to quote from Professor Sobchin, Synesthesia promotes the disclosure of thoughts and feelings, 
and enhances the emotional and evaluative color of emotionally valuable means. It is one of the signs of the axiological aspect of the reflection of reality. Acts of the creative process appear as a desire to reveal the connection of things, to artistically recreate being in its diversity. Investigating this phenomena, Marina Leonidovna Saitseva, professor of the Department of History and Theory of Performance Art at Maimonides State Classical Academy, Moscow, determined that synesthesia is the realization in this phenomenon of the idea of synthesis of human sensory capabilities, the epistemological, logical orientation of the ideas of holistic perception and historicism. In the view of Galina Sabchin, synesthesia is an integral part of cognition. The doctrine of synesthesia is especially relevant today because, as researchers say, in the current condition of sociocultural anthropological crisis, the phenomenon appears as one of the possible ways to integrate these different levels of social consciousness and human consciousness. It is synesthesia that helps to unite all aspects of perception and thinking, strengthens aesthetic perception, and gives artistic images a special force of influence. Marina Leonovna Saitseva, studying synesthesia, notes that the artist, based on synesthesia, will be the source of the development of personal qualities of man, which will not only help to perceive the world as a whole, but, quote, will develop the ability to absorb the spiritual, moral component of art to make it the basis of their own lives. Anatoly Stanislavovich Konarsky, Marxist philosopher at Ukraine State University in Kiev, rightly noted that, quote, without understanding human culture sensually, it is impossible to properly understand the meaning and content of the functioning of various forms of public consciousness, science, morality, art, politics, etc. According to Lyudmila Evolashtina, candidate of sciences and philosophy, library head, Higher School of Folks Academy, St. Petersburg, Russia, synesthesia compensates for the incompleteness of our sensuality. This is not only a connection between different feelings, it is a connection between emotions, which are followed by the discovery of an artistic image intuitively. Synesthesia is associated with the emotional sphere of human thinking. And here we can talk about the multiplication of emotions, in-depth aesthetic knowledge, which is carried out in the individual space of human sensuality. This ability, synesthesia, is inherent in all babies. Infant perception is abstract, not yet formed. The system of feelings is not formed either. At three to four months, babies already respond to singing and music. Color differentiation occurs in the fifth month, although the color is not yet a sign or an indication or an identification of any specific item. Feelings can be developed. By the third month, there is a differentiation of hearing and visual mental processes. A child not only sees and hears, but strives for visual and auditory impressions, like bright, shiny, and moving objects. The perception of an infant at the age of one year is syncretic and vague. In infancy, when the world is still perceived in abstract forms, 
Children often designate objects with color that do not actually have color. Examples, days of the week, numbers, natural phenomena. Teachers, psychologists, and pediatricians see synesthesia as an additional opportunity for the upbringing and development of cognitive abilities in a child, such as attention, memory, associativity, and creative potential in general. During this period, synesthesia is an open system, but it becomes closed with age. The infant, who is not yet able to determine where the sensation comes from, is characterized by a mixture of feelings. The world will be like a bright color light environment where sounds and smells come from, which you can touch and taste. The fact that it is possible to determine vision or hearing has to be tangible. The paints that first fell into the hands of the baby interest him instantly by themselves regardless of their purpose. A sound made by someone or something affects the way it is. A sharp one scares, a melodic one calms. Everything in the child's perception is direct and natural. This possibility of direct perception of reality is lost over time. Objects and phenomena cease to be abstractions and get their logical installation in the child's brain. However, the brightness and immediacy of perception which open the world to the infant as a phenomenal phenomenon, disappears. In the arsenal of childhood, there are not a small number of tools that help preserve this feeling of interpenetration of feelings. These are, of course, toys, children's books, games, cartoons, fairy tales, etc. A child's toy is an amazing creation of the human mind. The material and spiritual in it are so closely connected that the doll was considered a magical object in ancient times. The toy is endowed with numerous properties that can cause various emotions and feelings in the child. Playing with it, he experiences them often unconsciously, especially in infancy. This cycle of emotions causes not only the appearance of the toy, its colors, clothing, if it is there, purpose, but also something completely new that the child himself brought to this playing space. It is a story that is created against the background of the first sensations from the toy. The impression of an object is the meaning of this object for him. The connection of impressions in the infant replaces the connection of objects. The aesthetic component is very important in the formation of personality. And for a child, the aesthetic component is attractive for its emotionality. In The World of the Newborn, Charles and Daphne Maurer, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Behavior at McMaster University, also proposed that the normal newborn is synesthetic. They argued that, quote, the newborn does not keep sensations from one another, but rather mixes sights, sounds, and feelings, and smells into a sensual booyah base in which sights have sounds, feelings have tastes, and smells can make the baby feel dizzy. The infant's enhanced sensitivity will diminish as transient connections are pruned and a more specialized cortex exerts more control. But remnants of synesthesia persist in cross-modal influences.
Michael J. Banasi of the Department of Psychology, Goldsmiths University of London, and Roy Cohen Kadash of the Department of Experimental Psychology, Oxford University, tell us that among adults, synesthesia is a rare experience, where one property of a stimulus evokes a second experience not associated with the first. For example, in lexical gustatory synesthesia, words evoke the experience of taste. This is de rigueur, of course, and wine marketing, needless to say, where absolutely irrelevant nouns and adjectives are used to evoke the supposed taste of the wine, often in an utterly absurd fashion. Our Pinot Gris is like a spring morning in Normandy, etc., etc. There are at least 60 known variants of synesthesia, including reports of synesthetic experiences of color, taste, touch, and sound. According to Banasi and Kadosh, the lower bound prevalence of the condition is considered to be approximately 4%. Note the word condition, as if this is something diagnostic, something you don't want. Scott Novich, Department of Neuroscience and Baylor College of Medicine, and his colleagues tell us that in synesthesia, ordinary stimuli elicit anomalous perceptual experiences. Their analyses converged on the finding of five distinct groupings of synesthesia forms. They label these as follows. Colored sequence synesthesia, colored music synesthesias, non-visual sequelae synesthesias, spatial sequence synesthesia, and colored sensation synesthesias. For them, their findings reveal that synesthesia is an umbrella term that encompasses several distinct groups with independent probabilities of expression. And this may, in turn, suggest distinct underlying mechanisms and the possibility of different genetic bases. Several types of color synesthesias are triggered by stimuli that involve sensations. These include triggers such as personality and emotion, conceptual triggers, they say, as well as touch, pain, and the expression of orgasm, physical triggers. Have patience, dear listener. We shall return to the topic of orgasm later. Just hang in there. In an article published in the book, The Hidden Sense, Synesthesia in Art and Science, Chrétien van Kampen of the University of Utrecht tells us that about 1 in 23 persons has a type of neurological synesthesia. Over 50 types have been reported, according to Chrétien van Kampen, and people differ in intensity of the experiences. However, Professor van Kampen is referring solely to studies done in the so-called advanced cultures and societies. In fact, synesthesia is more common, much more common, an everyday phenomenon in point of fact outside of this narrow grouping. The Dasana people in the Amazon commonly experience smell in color, color energies, and so they would not report that as an uncommon synesthesia. The children of the Dasana grew up in a culture where they are familiarized from the cradle with the multi-sensory color energies of objects. It is this difference that makes the Dasana children more aware of the synesthetic color energies of sounds, tastes, and odors than their North American and European peers. In many Melanesian languages, such as Kilaviva, the language of the Trobian Islanders, one speaks of 
hearing a smell. In this association is carried over in pidgin English, me harum smell. The reason for this is that most communication takes place face-to-face, i.e., within the olfactory range of the other. And odiferous substances, for example, anointing the body with oil, chewing ginger, are used to augment the power of a person's presence and words. Imagine, smell, substances that have smells, are used to augment the power of a person's presence and words. Think about it. Of course, perfume for some women and some men serves the same purpose in our culture, but I digress. It is also common in various African languages, such as Dogon, the language of Mali, to speak of hearing a smell. According to Dogon conceptions, speech, quote, has material properties that, despite its invisible nature, are more than just sound. Speech has an odor. It has a material property. Sound and odor, having vibration as their common origin, are so near to one another that the Dogon speak of hearing a smell. Why not? When did European culture begin to speculate on what we now call synesthesia, and in fact, on sensuousness, sensation, and sensuality? According to Oksana Sarnovska, Department of Philosophy, NUGP University, Ukraine, the problem or issue of synesthesia sensuality originates in the philosophical and aesthetic considerations of Pythagoras, Democritus, Plato, and Aristotle. These philosophers laid the groundwork for the classical approach to understanding synesthesia as a systemic feature of aesthetic sensuality, a manifestation of a special individual worldview which formed the basis of the concept of holistic knowledge and ultimately led to a new approach to the study of aesthetic sensuality in later periods of aesthetic development. For Pythagoras, the cosmos became a living, moving, and dynamic entity, an entity that can be measured. We assume that it is this understanding that led Pythagoras, a mathematician for whom the central cosmos became a word of art, experimentally to study harmony on an extended basis aimed at understanding the harmony of strings in order to establish harmony on earth. Independent and absolute existence was embodied in a perfect and beautiful cosmos for all antiquity, but especially for Pythagoras. According to the teachings of Pythagoras, all planets, including the moon and the sun, revolve around the earth in orbits in proportion to the scale and constantly emit inaudible sounds of the so-called music of the spheres. Pythagoras' students even managed to establish specific data about the unearthly cosmic music. Saturn sounds like C, Jupiter, To, Mars, Re, the Sun, Mi, Mercury, Fa, Venus, Sa, the Moon, Ne. Created independently of the Pythagoreans, such musical cosmology is also characteristic of the cultures of the ancient East, especially India and China. This, in the view of Oksana Sarnovska, proves the existence of unity in the development of different human civilizations, as well as the regularity of the concept of the music of the spheres, genetically linked to the high moral belief of the thinking man in the unchanging beauty of the perfect world the perfect universe, as we would now call it. Hence, the desire through music to hear heavenly harmony, and thus, 
to awaken or restore the human soul, tuning it in accordance to the universals, and in so doing, hearing music is a symphony of the world. Huh, I was listening to Nine Inch Nails last night. That really did it to me. I was just tuning in to the symphony of the universe. In such considerations of these ancient philosophers, worldwide apparently, there is a condition of synesthetic, plastic perceptions of everything defined by man, including music, which is generally characteristic of antiquity. Let us recall the echo of the synesthetic natural philosophy in the writings of Democritus, who explained the sensory phenomena of sensing sweet by the influence of round atoms, sharp by atoms with angles, bitter by atoms small and curved, and similarly, atomistic origin of music and speech. Of course, now we would not be talking about atoms anymore. We would be talking about perhaps tachyons. How small can you get? Tachyons are the things that Einstein wouldn't have liked, that move faster than the speed of light. And they're small, baby. They're little, little bit itty-bitty things. All going back to Democritus. In his treatise on sensory perception, Aristotle laid the classical foundations of the analysis of synesthesia, analyzing the physiological basis of the existence of a common sense. Quote, There are qualities available to individual sensations. For sight, color. For hearing, sound. There are also qualities available to all sensations in equal measure, number, figure, etc. There is no special organ to feel those qualities, that is, number, figure, etc. Their knowledge is that they are reduced to movement. Without movement, we cannot ascertain, discern, number, figure, and size. Curious notion. The movement of the eyes? Movement. And further, the sphere of consciousness in which language is formed unites the feelings of different perceptions and forms a common feeling. In episodes of this podcast, we have stressed that language, words, limit the sensuality of our experience by stuffing everything, sensations, objects, even people, into boxes and categories. When the benighted philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world, he expressed the antithesis of the philosophy of this podcast. But back to antiquity, when people were smart enough not to think like Wittgenstein. Characteristic of antiquity and of their worldview, the desire to endow all things with corporeality in various arts, including singing, dancing, found a more vivid sensory-slash-real embodiment. Everybody thinks of anything in terms of rhythm. Sight is in dance, hearing as in singing, touch as the pulse. In music, everything is felt by two organs, sight and hearing. Well, so said Quintilian about the depth of synesthetic sensation. However, the same Roman rhetorician also states, quote, It will therefore be desirable from time to time that in certain passages the rhythm should be deliberately dissolved, a view with which your host as a composer and someone who says, if you're tapping your foot, you're not really listening, heartily concurs. Fast forwarding to the 20th and 21st centuries, Bulat M. Goliath, 
director of the Scientific Research Institute for Experimental Aesthetics, affiliated with the Academy of Sciences of Tatarstan, and also with the Kazan State Technical University, Kazan, argues that synesthesia is not a mental anomaly, but rather a norm of the human psyche and its functions, namely perception, imagination, and creativity. He considers it as a specific manifestation of nonverbal thinking, realized by either involuntary or purposeful comparison of the impressions of different modalities on the basis of structural and semantic and, most of all, emotional similarity. In his opinion, synesthesia is a social and cultural, but not a biological, phenomenon. It is exactly language and art that serves as the testing areas where synesthesia is formed and most actively cultivated. I might say skip language, but thumbs up to art. It's my opinion. In Galeev's view, synesthesia, at least of the kind which is used in common language and art, is not a co-sensation, but rather a co-imagination or co-feeling. By its psychological nature, it is, quote, association, unquote, but specifically intersensory association. And as with any association, it can be either passive or active, creative or empathetic, having various degrees of emotional experience up to eidetic ones. Synesthesia can be characterized as concentrated and simultaneous actualization of the sensuous in a wide range of its manifestations. First, in this case, we have to deal with, so to speak, double sensority. And second, this metaphorical doubling is implemented by means of emotions, which relate to the sensuous realm too. That is why art was always the main field of social practice where synesthesia was cultivated and appeared. Bilat Kaleev reminds us that the understanding of the genesis and the essence of art itself as a method of developing the universal human sensuality taken in its integrity and harmony, had been affirmed throughout the history of philosophy by Baumgart, Kant, Hegel, Feuerbach, and many others. Kaleev goes on to suggest that synesthesia, as the essential feature of artistic thinking, compensates to a certain extent for the lack of sensuality in the monosensory arts. It is exactly the involvement of synesthesia that explains the relative indifference of an artistic image to the restrictions inherent to each art form, as well as the universal phenomenon of the united space-time in art. Each kind of art has its own specific totality of synesthesias, or, to put it another way, its own synesthetic fund. The specific synesthetic fund of each art form changes in the course of time. Its structure and content generally correspond to the evolution of the expressive means of these arts. And now we return to a major theme, perhaps the major theme, of this podcast series. According to the view of French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, all human experiences are based in the human body, and that is what explains the unity of the senses. The body is not only a physical thing, but is rather a subjective sense organ for each person. All kinds of stimulation of one's body create responses that mingle in a flux of impressions before one becomes consciously aware of them. In fact, 
The body shapes sensory experiences on an unconscious level, undersea level, so to speak, and one is aware only of the tip of the iceberg. Unconscious body experience is essentially synesthetic, according to Merleau-Ponty. All sensory impressions correspond and talk to each other on a pre-conscious level. Out of this pre-conscious flux of impressions, some gestalts emerge. And since everybody's body experience is personal, individual, the emerging gestalts are similarly personal, and thus different from one another. For Merleau-Ponty, the world is not thought beyond the body. It can only be encompassed by opening in multiple pathways of self-perceiving, self-perceiving through the body. In this sense, the notion of embodied existence means a break with the metaphysics of the spirit of the German speculative tradition from Kant and Fichte to Schelling and Hegel. And to this we would add the notion, the fact of embodied spirituality. The spiritual, in the view of this podcast, is also experienced through the body by opening up multiple pathways of self-perception. Merleau-Ponty emphasized the body as the primary site of knowing the world, a corrective to the long philosophical tradition of placing consciousness as the source of knowledge. Merleau-Ponty maintained that the body and that which it perceived could not be disentangled from each other. The articulation of the primacy of embodiment led him away from phenomenology toward what he was to call indirect ontology, or the ontology of the flesh of the world, seen in his final and incomplete work, The Visible and the Invisible, in his last published essay, I and Mind. To continue on with our philosophers, recently deceased French philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy takes Merleau-Ponty's thinking even further. Nancy provides a full array of his movements in the direction of the spatial corporeal configuration of man without the metaphysics of the subject-object. Christopher Watkin, senior lecturer in French studies at Monash University in Australia, states, quote, Nancy's radical emancipation rejects the determinate essence of the human in favor of understanding the human as a gesture self-surpassing, emancipating the human from any constraining essential concept of the subject. According to contemporary Slovenian philosopher Slavo Zizek, there are two candidates for the role of the subject par excellence, either the ideological subject, present in person, or the subject of the unconscious, a gap in the structure that is merely represented by a signifier. Althusser opted for the first choice, ideological status of the subject, whereas from the Lacanian perspective, the standpoint of those who follow the teachings and ideas of French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, the second choice seems far more productive. It allows us to conceive of the remaining three effects of subject as the derivations slash occultations of the symbolic, as the three modes of coming to terms with the gap in the structure that is the subject. To return to Christopher Watkin, Watkin also reminds us of Jean-Luc Nancy's notion that man, the human, is essentially unfinished. In my personal opinion, the only species that are finished, from an evolutionary perspective, are the extinct ones. 
With direct reference to the body, Nancy explicitly says on this topic in his work Corpus, quote, Bodies aren't some kind of fullness or filled space. Space is filled everywhere. He's thinking perhaps in terms of space-time atoms, as we've discussed in terms of the physicist Faye Dauker. But we'll resume the sentence or start from the beginning again. Bodies aren't some kind of fullness or filled space. Space is filled everywhere. They are open space, implying, in some sense, space more properly spacious. And nothing exists without a place, a there, a here, a here is, or a this. More precisely, it makes room for the fact that the essence of existence is to be without any essence. To me, this is an extremely liberating idea. It frees us of all notions of essentialism, the view that objects, including each of us, have a finite set of attributes that are necessary to their identity. It also frees us of the notion that everything has a grand purpose, a goal toward which we are moving, either a religious eschatology, and I am thinking of ideas such as, Jesus will return someday and lead all people of the book, and also from any Hegelian notion of Geist or spirit, translation of Geist, the collective purpose of agency and genus of man, which implies a limit, which defies the notion of infinity. Once spirit is completed, that's it. Nowhere to go beyond that. Not something I agree with. However, to return to the implications of Jean-Luc Nancy's statement that the essence of existence is to be without any essence. That is why, per Nancy, ontology of the body is ontology itself. Being is in no way prior or subjacent to the phenomenon here. The body is the basis of existence. The ontological body has yet to be thought. Unquote Jean-Luc Nancy. Any promised fusion of the senses is simply not available precisely because, according to Jean-Luc Nancy, philosophy is fundamentally and inescapably sensual or sensuous at its inception, beginning with the cornerstone of Western philosophy. That is, the subject itself is the very possibility of conceptual thought. The senses, in fact, seem innately to resist any attempt to bring them under the control of sense. And this uncontrollable profusion, or anarchic exuberance of the senses, as Nancy terms it, extraordinary sense, is such that philosophical systems that attempt to give order and meaning to this anarchy do so only at the cost of negating the extraordinary sensual richness that Nancy locates at the very origin and heart of sense-making, of the making of sense. Sensual richness is at the very heart of the origin of sense-making. I love that. As he says toward the end of Extraordinary Sense, quote, intelligible sense cannot sublimate and resorb the dissemination of the sensible. Nancy's work thus forces us to rethink how we conceive of both the senses, as they are conventionally understood and historically determined, as well as the nature of the world, or of, quote, our world, unquote. We need to abandon this distinction between the senses and the world, 
even between the senses and society, since for non-C, sense, the senses, and the world are all inseparably intertwined. An inherently synesthetic idea, with which I very much agree, in which, as I mention elsewhere, goes against the mind-body dualism which can be traced back at least as far as Plato, and which found its classic expression in the philosophy of René Descartes. Instead of, I think, therefore I am, as Descartes so famously intoned, I would say, I am, therefore I am. And in a certain way, the word embodied, which I confess to employing rather a lot, is not a good usage, since it implies that there exists something outside the body, and without a body of its own, an external non-physical something which, as it were, gets to hang out in our bodies, like maybe a virus or a parasite. In an article published in the journal The Sense and Society, Jean-Luc Nancy himself tells us that the uncontrollable and synesthetic dissemination of the senses resists any attempt to impose rational, intelligible order, or to make sense. In an article published in the journal Psyche, Richard E. Saitovich, professor of neurology at George Washington University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., states, quote, Regarding synesthesia, we conclude that all intervening transformations between the eye and the visual cortex are possible candidates for processes that are closer to the trunk of perception than a completed, and presumably cortically situated, visual image is. By analogy, the consensual image we see on the screen when watching television is the terminal stage of the broadcast. Someone able to intercept the transmission anywhere between the studio camera and the TV screen would be like a synesthete, sampling the transmission before it reached the screen, fully elaborated. Presumably, their experience would be different from those of us watching the screen. We can similarly propose and test the concept of synesthesia as the premature display of a normal cognitive process. This implies that we are all synesthetic and that only a handful of people are consciously aware of the holistic nature of perception. If you have been following the Explore Ecstatic Sensuality podcast, you may recognize a theme first presented in our introductory episode. The mind is engaged in an unremitting process of filtration so that everything not necessary, according to an evolutionary determined criterion of survival, does not reach consciousness. The synesthetic individual can access sensory inputs farther upstream at the headwaters of experience, at the headwaters of reality. And in fact, we can all do this. As Saitovich reminds us, we are all synesthetic. And this form of synesthesia is essential for sensuality. And now, let us turn to other forms and manifestations of synesthesia, and also to the characteristics, personality and otherwise, of individuals who experience synesthesia. In an article published in the journal Neurology, Tom A. Schweitzer, Department of Neurology, University of Toronto, and his colleagues introduced the idea of emotional synesthesia. To quote that article, emotional synesthesia is a condition in which specific sensory stimuli are consistently and involuntarily 
associated with emotional responses. There is a very small number of reports of subjects with these stereotyped emotion-sensation pairings. One report described a subject in whom tactile stimulation from different textures, for example denim, elicited affective experiences, e.g. feelings of depression. I would propose a study of in how many men the taste of their girlfriends, you know what I'm talking about, is emotionally paired with feelings of unutterable joy. Even for the not-yet-synesthetic individual, sexual tastes and smells evoke powerful, positive, generous, and giving emotions. In an article published in the journal Psychology of Consciousness, Theory, Research, and Practice, Christine A. Simmons-Moore of the University of West Georgia and her colleagues report on their research into synesthesia as follows, quote, The Synesthesia Experience Questionnaire, or SEQ, was internally reliable and correlated positively with reported anomalous experiences, number of parapsychological experiences, and other unusual experiences, and negatively with intravenous anhedonia which is a reduced ability to experience pleasure and which is a feature of full-blown schizophrenia. The synesthesia experience questionnaire was not directly related to the satisfaction with life scale. In an article published in the Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia, Marcus Zedler, Associate Medical Director at Hanover Medical School, and Marie Rama, also of the Hanover Medical School, report that, statistically, synesthetes showed higher social orientation, higher scores of sensitivity, and fewer psychosomatic complaints. Synesthetic sensuality showed evidence of deeper trance experiences in sexuality, but without an overall increase in perceived enjoyment. We postulate, as others have done, that this is because synesthetes feel isolated in their sexual trance experiences. But this does not have to be the case. We'll return to this later. Sedler and his colleagues also considered additional factors self-reported by the synesthetes in their study and the possibility that synesthesia may be a protective quality for health. They found significantly higher scores of oceanic boundlessness and visionary restructuralization in the group of synesthetes. Ask a group of synesthetes, and A and others have done, and you get an unbelievably firm belief in the powers of intuition. The belief in the power of precognition may be a particular belief of people with synesthesia. Another oft-reported phenomenon in synesthetes is lucid dreaming. That is a form of dreaming in which one is aware that one is dreaming and that the events in the dream are not reality. It is possible to influence these dreams and one may perform volitional actions such as flying from rooftops. 82 of the group of 100 tested described clearly the experiences of lucid dreaming. As an aside, allow me to state, as I have done in a previous episode, that your presenter is, and always has been, a lucid dreamer. However, although I perform volitional actions in my lucid dreams, including volitional intimate actions, always delightfully consensual, let me add, I am not always in control of the geography of the dream world. In other words, I am volitional, but being volitional does not stand in the way of my getting lost in environments which restructure themselves in ways not in conformance with my will. 
In that sense, my lucid dreams are quite a bit like real life. Let me say just for a second that if you're looking for dream sequences in movies, you know, they have dream sequences in movies that are interestingly like lucid dreams, I highly recommend season three, 2018 season, so-called special edition season of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Again, if you're interested in dreams and dreaming and lucid dreams, that would really blow your mind. But back to synesthetes. Synesthetes had strong confidence in their possibilities and power. Synesthetes, particularly women, score higher than the general population on social engagement, meaning that they feel more socially responsible and or more ready to help others. Women synesthetes score higher than the general population on excitability. They are more sensitive and sometimes more unrestrained. This is a good reason for women to cultivate their synesthesia. What man is not looking for a sensitive, unrestrained woman? In research published in the journal Scientific Reports, Julia Simner, School of Psychology, University of Sussex, and her colleagues introduce us to the term objectum sensuality. Objectum sensuality, OS, also known as objectophilia, is a sexual orientation which has received little attention in the academic literature. Individuals who identify as OS experience emotional, romantic, and or sexual feelings toward inanimate objects, e.g., a bridge, a fence, a statue, even the Berlin Wall. These researchers tested 34 OS individuals and 88 controls and provided the first empirical evidence that OS is linked to two separate neurodevelopmental traits, autism on the one hand and, on the other, synesthesia. They demonstrate that OS individuals possess significantly higher prevalence of synesthesia and significant synesthetic traits inherent in the nature of their attractions. Epidemiological studies show that multiple forms of synesthesia tend to occur within the same individual. Some forms of synesthesia imbue inanimate objects with genders or personalities. Hence, people with object personification synesthesia might feel that their house keys are female or that their pocket wash is shy. They discovered a number of significant relationships between object sexuality and synesthesia. Firstly, they found that the romantic affections of object sexuality individuals toward objects do appear to be driven, at least in part, by object personification synesthesia. This was revealed by the fact that object sexuality individuals do tend to sense personality traits in their object partners and that these show the synesthetic hallmark of consistency over time. That is to say, the object sexuality group were significantly more consistent compared to controls when assigning personalities to inanimate objects. Julia Simner and her colleagues proposed that synesthetic personalities and genders might increase the anthropomorphic qualities of inanimate objects which could facilitate the development of intimate and romantic feelings over time. Finally, in their research, object sexuality was associated with a broader synesthetic phenotype in showing significantly elevated rates of two other types of synesthesia, 
graphene personification synesthesia, and graphene color synesthesia. Their data address psychological and philosophical models of romantic love, which have traditionally been defined around personhood, that is to say, a feeling of pleasure derived from an attraction toward another person. To quote the concluding sentence in their study, our findings suggest, crucially, that personification rather than personhood may be the necessary prerequisite for romantic love to arise. We find this fascinating. To personify the object of one's affection and desire is to take what is perceived as an object. Perhaps in Jacques Lacan's word, objet petit a, the unattainable object of desire, and personify that object by, if you will, objectifying it and then personifying it as in an anthropomorphic act. Taking the impression of your beloved in your mind, turning it into an object, personifying it, turning it into a person then, anthropomorphic, to make human, to create the morphism, to enact in the morphism of making human. So it is not the person who is the prerequisite for romantic love to arise, but the personification of that person which is formed in the attractive person's mind. However, back to romantic love. What is it all about? What can one do to achieve it? We'll be back with more synesthesia after a break.
Welcome back. Here's more about synesthesia. In an oft-cited and referenced article published in the Journal of Sex Research, Donald L. Mosher, Ph.D., of the University of Connecticut opines that involvement is a complex of psychological processes in which there is an interaction of fundamental emotions, interest, excitement, and enjoyment slash joy, with cognitions and actions that can be described by three dimensions. One, sexual role enactment. Two, sexual trance. And three, engagement with the sex partner. Sexual role congruence, sexual role perception, and sexual role skills are required for involved, convincing, and appropriate sexual role enactment. Sexual trance is enhanced by procedures such as those found in sex therapy, hypnosis, and meditation that help the person abandon the generalized reality orientation and form the special sexual orientation. Sexual trance deepens when there is a partial relaxation of critical functions and partial orientation towards sexual meanings. As the reality orientation continues to fade, and attention is primarily focused on the special sexual orientation. Involvement in sexual trance. 1. Partial relaxation of critical orientation and partial orientation to the sexual meaning of the experience. 2. Fading of a generalized reality orientation and predominant focus of attention on the special sexual orientation. 3. Abandonment abandonment of the generalized reality orientation and establishment of the special sexual orientation. 4. Deliberately focused, concentrated awareness. 5. Involuntary fascination. And finally, 6. Total absorption in the special sexual orientation. Although deep involvement in sexual role enactment and sexual trance is possible with a broad range of partners, deep involvement in the dimension of engagement with a sex partner requires a narrow latitude of acceptance. Depth of engagement with the partner in a particular episode is a function of the strength and salience of the bond between the partners, core personality participation, and the meaning of the sexual contact episode. Imbalanced involvement based upon a single preferred dimension results in sexual contact episodes with different characteristics in the sense that these have less depth of engagement and less meaning. Meaning. We're not talking here about verbal meaning. This is an aside for me. We're talking about soul meaning, spiritual meaning, bodily meaning, body slash spiritual meaning. Back to Mr. Mosher, Professor Mosher, I should say. When sexual role enactment is the preferred dimension of involvement for a particular episode, the sexual mood will be playful with high self-esteem. The setting will be dramatic and exhibitionistic. The sexual techniques will be varied. The sexual style will be active and expressive. Fantasies will contain a scripted plot, and sex is conceived to be an adventure or drama that leads to involuntary ecstatic expression and orgasm in which the participants are prototypical men and women. 
prototypical. Standard definition, but lots of fun. When sexual trance is the preferred pathway of involvement, the setting requires freedom from distraction. The mood is relaxed and receptive. Sexual techniques emphasize repetitive, sensual pacing. The sexual style is passive and inwardly oriented. Fantasies are scriptless, sensory images. And sex is conceived to be an altered state of consciousness or a trip that leads to intense absorption into sensation and orgasm with faded consciousness into which the person is transported. When engagement with the sex partner programs the sexual contact episode, then the mood and setting are romantic reminders of the love bond. The sexual techniques emphasize kissing, cuddling, and face-to-face contact. Eye contact, I would add. The sexual style is affectionate and mutually pleasuring. The fantasies are romantic. Sex is conceived to be a loving merger and orgasms are flowing with a loss of the self in a loving union. So, back to Mosher's three dimensions of depth of involvement in human sexual response. Sexual trance is one of the three postulated dimensions essential to a maximum extent of depth of involvement, which in turn is a condition for efficient sexual stimulation the maximum extent of sexual trance, leads to a state of total absorption. The other dimensions are role enactment and engagement with a partner. According to Mosher, an equilibrium between those three dimensions is a condition for a maximum extent of depth involvement and thus for sexual satisfaction. The word equilibrium in a certain way troubles me. I would refer instead to a maximization of each of these three dimensions as Mosher has described them very well. And a very good idea for couples to alternate among these three dimensions based on the context of the sexual experience and the mood of the partners. It strikes me that the best romantic-slash-sexual relationships can only occur when the lovers have all of these three dimensions as elements of their romantic repertoire. Repertoire, things you can do, pieces you can play, symphonies, string quartets, massive organ works, little pieces, sonatas for two, all the pieces one can play. Throughout a relationship, not only in the bedroom, throughout every element of one's affection with one's beloved. In an article entitled Synesthesia and Sexuality, The Influence of Synesthetic Perceptions on Sexual Experience, published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, Janina Nielsen, Department of Clinical Psychology, Hanover Medical School, and her associates discuss the notion of sexual synesthesia. To quote them, At present, it is generally considered to be a type of synesthesia, and apart from the designation of sexual synesthesia, it usually receives the name orgasm color, although it is actually a much wider phenomenon. To quote Professor Nielsen, its inducers, that is the inducers of sexual synesthesia, can be either orgasm itself or sexual activity in general, and also caressing, general touch, 
and hugging and kissing with one's partner. And I therefore believe that it would be better referred to as, better described as, sexual and romantic synesthesia. During their sexual trance, and in this I detect strong echoes of Professor Moshe's perspective, orgasm in affectionate moments with their significant other, some people perceive colors, shapes, patterns, objects, and whole scenes involving places and people. Sometimes the images are complex and or figurative. So rather than being synesthesia, they're actually more similar to the hallucinatory processes typical of the hypnagogic state, the state of profound relaxation that marks the transition from wakefulness to sleep. In a few cases, these colors and images show consistency. The same color or pictures always corresponds with the same inducing concept, although it appears to be more common for them to be random, with no link to a specific triggering aspect and never repeating. They can probably be related to a special state of extreme relaxation and focus. As already mentioned, these colors and images are not only perceived during sex and definitely not only during orgasm. They are perceived when there is physical contact, sexual or non-sexual, with one's partner during moments of relaxation and normally in the case of a stable relationship and not with occasional partners. The advantage of being in a relationship, you might say. The phenomenon thus occurs not only during the sexual trance, but also in response to hugging, caressing, and kissing, but only with a person with whom one is in a romantic relationship. So it would not happen on hugging or kissing parents, friends, and siblings, etc. kind of happens when I hug my cats, but that's neither here nor there. Some people say that they have only ever experienced it with one particular partner and never with others. Some say they also experience it during sexual activity without a partner being present. It seems that both men and women can have these visualizations, but that it is much more common in women, although at the time of this writing, Nielsen and her co-investigators did not yet have figures to support this. More research, more research. It, that is to say what they call sexual and romantic synesthesia, can happen to both synesthetes and non-synesthetes, although the former have the most intense visual experiences. The figurative images very rarely have a sexual theme. Natural elements, like trees, flowers, and the countryside, are frequently seen, and the characters and places can be known, but are more often strangers in locations they have never visited. Sometimes they are not exclusively visual, and sounds or music are heard. And again, to repeat, we're talking about what these researchers call sexual and romantic synesthesia, a special term not to be confused with straight sexual synesthesia, if you want to call it that. Here, from their study, are some examples. Colors, a wave of color, one color or two, one color that morphs into another, or into darkness. Colors with texture, location, and movement. They tend to be random and not consistent, although some people say there is consistency between a specific color and some aspect of their experience, 
with certain colors corresponding to a better or less satisfactory sexual experience or to certain sex positions. For example, go through your Kama Sutra. That's your red color visualization in that position. That's my purple color visualization in that position. Fascinating. Combinations of colors, patterns, and shapes. Different colors changing or following on from each other. Explosions of color. Fireworks. Flashing or changing lights. Laser-type lights. Clouds of color. Kaleidoscopic patterns. Complex patterns. Fractals. Shapes. Changing graphic forms or Kandinsky-like figures. Objects. Flowers. Flowers opening their petals. Precious stones, fruit, other natural elements like trees and waterfalls even letters and numbers, scenes, locations, and characters. The scenes are very random and do not normally have a sexual theme. People often figure, and they sometimes speak, saying words or phrases. Occasionally, familiar places are seen, but the locations and people are not usually known to the person who sees them. Some examples reported, a boat in the sea, an amusement park, a roller coaster, for example natural landscapes, a forest, particularly common, childhood memories, walking down the street, being in a kitchen or other room in a house, writing in a diary, at a shop buying wrapping paper, standing in front of a hollow tree with a light shining out of it, in a dark castle. Several people have mentioned finding themselves in a video game. Whoa. You're having sex and you see yourself as being in a video game. Hmm. Interesting. I might have written that. Sometimes the images have cartoonish aspects, and they can be comical or ridiculous. Back to these visualizations. Sounds or music. Tones or frequencies or other sounds. One person says, Sometimes I'll hear music. I don't physically hear it, but occasionally I feel it blaring and feel the vibrations. Another person says she always hears the same sound, something like, e non stroma, none e non stroma. Here are some examples written by people who experience this phenomenon. When I hug him or kiss him, I see strange, vivid images in my mind. Sometimes they are beautiful, e.g., a pulsating mandala, or balls of light, or an intricate, sprawling lichen, or a mossy rock in a misty forest or an iridescent fog. Other times they are bizarre and intense. For example, a multi-limbed, dancing, boldly colored cave painting of a woman. Yet other times they are mundane, ridiculous, and even hilarious. A jar of mayonnaise, or a derpy dog running into a wall, or a cake decorated with raw green beans. Hmm. For me, Less intense orgasms are cerulean waves, and my most intense orgasms are bright goldenrod bursts of light. Sometimes they fall in between intensities and appear as a deep purple glitter. Quoting another person, My favorite thing is that I get different really vivid imagery for each sexual position. Like one's a big building full of empty rooms, One's a train yard at dusk. Another, barrels floating down a river. I have no idea why. 
It's very mysterious. Another concept useful in discussing states of transcendent sensuality, intimacy and love in romantic sexual situations, is what psychologists call absorption. In an article published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, Rui Miguel Costa of the William James Center for Research, ISPA Instituto Universitario, Lisbon, Portugal, and his colleagues tell us that self-forgetfulness is a facet of self-transcendence characterized by tendency to experience altered states of consciousness. Women's self-forgetfulness correlates with desired frequency of intercourse and non-coital sex. Desired frequency. For men, self-forgetfulness correlates with actual frequency of intercourse and non-coital sex. A series of absorption-related traits, namely hypnotic susceptibility, vividness of imagination, and synesthesia, were associated with indices of sexual responsiveness. Correlations were observed between vividness of imagination and sexual arousability, between hypnotic susceptibility and women's capacity to attain coital orgasm, and between visuosexual synesthesia and higher sexual desire. We're going to stop for a moment and repeat. Correlations were observed between vividness of imagination and sexual arousability. One is more sexually arousable if one has a vivid imagination. This harkens back to our most recent episode on sexual fantasy. Sexual fantasies aren't bad. Fuel your imagination. Incite your imagination. And then you will be more sexually arousable. Back to Professor Costa in Lisbon. At a subjective level, individuals more predisposed to absorption may have more vivid sexual fantasies and get more attentionally focused on stimuli of sexual significance. Therefore, they might be more fascinated by actual and potential partners. It's true with me. Given that one core characteristic of self-forgetfulness is the propensity for transient reductions in awareness of time and surrounding space, it is worth noting that for women during sex, desire correlated strongly with loss of awareness of time and moderately with loss of awareness of surrounding space. For men, on the other hand, during sex, desire correlated moderately with loss of space awareness and was uncorrelated with time awareness. Fascinating. Oka Telegan of the University of Minnesota and Gilbert Atkinson proposed that absorbed attention on someone else may enhance empathy. They further stated that persons more prone to absorption would have a readiness for being fascinated and for desiring deep emotional involvement in relationships temporary or lasting. In an article published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, Louis H. Swartz, State University of New York at Buffalo, tells us that the absorbed state sexual arousal orgasm pathway hypothesis asserts that absorbed states of consciousness accompanying sexual arousal, sometimes called altered states of consciousness or sexual trance, play important roles in sexual response not previously recognized. 
absorbed states are an obligatory pathway, obligatory pathway, I repeat, to high physiological sexual arousal and to orgasm in many, perhaps all, females. The role of absorbed states in males is facilitation of arousal and orgasm with enhancement of pleasure and subjective quality of experience. In an article entitled Non-Genital Orgasms, published in the journal Sexual and Relationship Therapy, Barry R. Komisarok, Department of Psychology, Rutgers University, and Beverly Whipple, Professor Emerita at Rutgers, cite evidence from research and other sources of orgasms elicited by imagery, stimulation of nipple, lips, mouth, anus, rectum, prostate, and other bodily regions. They documented cases of women who claim they can experience orgasms just by imagery without any physical stimulation. Their exhibited bodily reactions of doubling of heart rate, blood pressure, pupil diameter, and pain threshold, responses that are comparable in magnitude to when the same women induced orgasms by genital self-stimulation, bear out their claim. This type of non-genitally induced orgasm may be typical for some individuals, they say. As a visual artist, I am intrigued by the fact that for some, orgasms may be induced by imagery, solely by imagery. It is a cliché, or at best a flabby witticism, when individuals exit a concert and say that Lady Gaga's or Madonna's performance was truly orgasmic, but perhaps for some it was. It is an aspiration of mine to be able to elicit true and actual orgasms in people, by which I really mean women, and perhaps only certain women, who listen to music I compose. As a footnote to the subject of orgasms, and in the greater scheme of things, what other subject is there, Chowna Chen of the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Glasgow and her associates report the following as published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Observational studies report that people experiencing pain or orgasm produce facial expressions that are indistinguishable, which questions their role as an effective tool for communication. Using complementary analyses, they show that representation of pain and orgasm are distinct in each culture. They also show that pain is represented with similar face movements across cultures, whereas orgasm shows differences. So, if you have just had sex with someone from a different culture, how would you know that that individual has had an orgasm? Like with someone from down the block, or presumably someone from Italy, it would be easy, and they would have a hard time faking it. But with someone from Mali or Mongolia, how would you know? This should really keep you awake at night. In an article entitled Synesthesia and Sexuality, The Influence of Synesthetic Perceptions on Sexual Experience, published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, Janina Nielsen, Department of Clinical Psychiatry, Social Psychiatry, and Psychotherapy, Hanover Medical School, Hanover, Germany, and Tillman H.C. Kruger, Department of Psychology, Harvard Medical School, reported on a study which included 17 women and two men who experienced synesthetic perception during sexual experiences. 
One participant explained that during an orgasm, the wall bursts, and ring-like structures appeared in blue-violet tones. All of the participants said that their synesthetic perceptions were induced by emotional states. Emotional states induce synesthetic perceptions during orgasm. Fascinating. Compared to the general population, synesthetes had a higher level of sexual functioning overall. They reported greater sexual desire, but less sexual satisfaction. Synesthetes were also more likely to report experiencing oceanic boundlessness and visionary restructuralization during sexual intercourse. The former refers to dissolution of ego boundaries, while the latter refers to sensory illusions and an altered sense of meaning. The higher levels of oceanic boundlessness and visionary restructuralization in synesthetes could explain why they reported greater sexual desire but less satisfaction. Quote, the high degree of sexual trance in synesthetes may provide an increased focus on sensual experiences on the inside instead of partner-related aspects, these researchers explained. This explanation is supported by the results of personal interviews in which the synesthetes reported an isolating effect of their synesthetic experiences, while at the same time they experienced their perceptions as enriching and pleasant for themselves. However, as we remarked a few moments ago, the goal should be for shared sexual and romantic synesthesia, which you can and should, in fact must, cultivate with your partner. How? The answer to that question is only moments away. Synesthetes depicted significantly better overall sexual function on the KFSP, a questionnaire developed by these researchers in Germany with increased scores for the subscale sexual appetence, but keyfully significant lower subscale scores for sexual satisfaction. Sexual dysfunction was not detected in this sample. Synesthetes depicted significantly higher levels of the subscale's oceanic boundlessness and visionary restructuralization. Synesthetes, however, reported an unsatisfactory feeling of isolation caused by their idiosyncratic perceptions. Synesthetes with sexual forms of synesthesia seem to be experiencing a deeper state of sexual trance without, however, enhanced satisfaction during sexual intercourse. So these Germans report. Sexual types of synesthesia, as we remarked before, do not only contain orgasms and sexual arousal, but also more general tactile inducers such as touching, caressing, and petting, i.e., all forms of physical contact during sexual intercourse. Unquote. Therefore, sexual synesthesia actually contains several synesthetic types. Unquote. It is so funny that these Germans refer to touching, caressing, and petting as behaviors that occur during intercourse, whereas in fact they should occur, and with great frequency, between lovers, both in and out of the bedroom. And for a couple who've cultivated their own innate synesthesia, each touch, each caress, can awaken sensations and sensuality over all dimensions. Why box this thrill into something intended only to arouse interest in jumping into bed and doing <clears throat> the F word? Why? No reason. Outside synesthesia research, 
Synesthetic experiences during sexual activity have been described by other sex researchers. For his book, The Female Orgasm, Psychology, Physiology, Fantasy, Seymour Fisher conducted an interview study to investigate female orgasmic experiences. The words of one subject bear remarkable resemblance to the description of synesthetes. The only images I experienced at this time and during orgasm is a fuzzy blackness with red or white muted bursts coming through it. What it all comes down to is, are our alleged five senses, and why limit ourselves to that number, separate and distinct, separate and distinct from one another, or not? I was once mugged while walking at night near the corner of Robertson Boulevard and Cadillac Avenue in Los Angeles. I reached into my pocket to get my wallet, at the mugger's request, naturally, and as I did so, they must have thought that I was reaching for a gun. So... The next thing I remember was walking toward the apartment where my girlfriend at the time lived. As I was walking, I felt something wet on my head and asked myself, is it raining? I reached my hand up and felt a sticky moisture. When I looked at my palm, it was red. My girlfriend at the time was generous enough to allow me to stay at her place while I recovered from this concussion, skull fracture, and other head injury. She was, and remains to this day, an excellent cook. She gets better all the time, actually. But I had no interest in any of the superb meals and delicacies she brought me. After ten days or so of this, she obtained a recommendation for a neurologist. When I went to see him, he pulled out a scratch and sniff from his toolkit, but when he held it against my nostrils, I smelled nothing. This reminded me of how much of what all of us experience as taste is actually olfactory, is actually smell. All that the taste buds, so-called, can sense and communicate to our consciousness are sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami, which is to say, savory. Although a separate taste receptor for fat, CD36, has now been conjectured. Who knew? Goodness gracious, does fat taste good in and of itself? That is bad, bad news. Once again, other cultures and their philosophers have different and rather enlightening impression views regarding the senses. The Buddhist Mahayana Sutra Alkama whose verses are attributed to the 4th century sage Asanga, claims in chapter 9, verse 41, that for a Buddha, the ultimate master of meditation, in the transformation of the five senses, highest mastery is acquired in the operation of all five senses upon all five objects. A commentary by the 7th century philosopher Shatiramati explicitly explains that all upon all means that, for a Buddha, each of the five senses perceives all kinds of sense objects. That is to say, the eye sense not only sees forms, but hears sounds, etc. And so, for each of the other senses. In China, an ancient Taoist contemplative found that upon his enlightenment, quote, I heard with my eyes and saw with my ears, I used my nose as my mouth, and my mouth as my nose. It appears to me that there are clearly advantages to being a synesthete, which is to say, to experience our sensory, sensual world synesthetically. 
Is there a way to, if you will, become a synesthete? As we have noted, there are reasons to believe that synesthetes have, or can have, a more fulfilling sex life, including more profound orgasms, oceanic orgasms, orgasms that encompass everything, to the extent that we can talk about everything. Synesthesia proves, more than anything, the foolhardiness of the idea of mind-body dualism and of the inferior state of the body and bodily perceptions and experiences. And this, again, brings us back to the very first episode of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. In an article entitled, Can Synesthesia Be Cultivated?, published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies, Roger Walsh, professor of psychiatry and human behavior, University of California, Irvine Medical School, summarizes research he has done on the effect of meditation on the development of synesthesia. To quote Professor Walsh, Synesthesia is considered a rare perceptual capacity and one that is not capable of cultivation. However, meditators report the experience quite commonly, and in questionnaire surveys, respondents claim to experience synesthesia in 35% of meditation retreatants, in 63% of a group of regular meditators, and in 86% of advanced teachers. These rates were significantly higher than in non-meditator controls and displayed significant correlations with measures of amount of meditation experience. The more you meditate, the more you experience synesthesia. If you meditate regularly rather than going on a retreat, you experience synesthesia more predictably and more regularly. Returning to Professor Walsh, a review of ancient texts found reports suggestive of synesthesia in advanced meditators from India and China. And these findings suggest that synesthesia may be cultivated by meditation and that laboratory studies of meditators could be rewarding. The amount of meditation practice is related to the probability of reporting synesthesia. For meditators, at least, synesthesia is apparently a positive experience. 38% of all meditator synesthetes reported their synesthesia to be pleasant, 4% rated it as neutral, and only 2% rated it as unpleasant. Likewise, 22% rated it as helpful, and there were no reports of it being unhelpful. Compared to previous studies of synesthesia suggesting an incidence of one in several hundred or even several thousand, the incidence reported by the meditators in this study is striking, 35%, 63%, 86% for Buddhist practitioners, and 43% for the medical student practitioners. This incidence is four to ten times higher than among the non-meditator controls. The only study which reported a comparable incidence was a questionnaire survey of 358 fine art students, of whom 84, or 23%, claim synesthesia, a claim consistent with the idea that synesthesia is more common among artists, poets, and novelists. How about novelists and composers like me? These data suggest that meditators can develop exceptional perceptual sensitivity which may underlie their enhanced synesthesia. This may lend partial support to the claim that synesthetic processes are common to all of us. 
This idea has been suggested by, for example, the phenomenologist Merleau-Ponty in his book The Phenomenology of Perception and neurologist Richard E. Saitovich, whom we mentioned above, both of whom we mentioned above. Saitovich claims that, quote, synesthesia is actually a normal brain function in every one of us, but that its workings reach conscious awareness in only a handful. Unquote. It is clear from this that Professor Walsh has been studying some of the same scholars and philosophers that we have. So, the path is simple. First, consider carefully what Professor Mosher has to tell us about the necessary components of love and intimacy. To repeat, involvement is a complex of psychological processes in which there is an interaction of fundamental emotions, interests slash excitement, and enjoyment slash joy with cognitions and actions that can be described by three dimensions. One, sexual role enactment. Two, sexual trance. And three, engagement with the sex partner. Next, consider some of the Buddhist and Taoist texts, both those I mentioned a moment ago and others. Just as an aside, I feel that it is incumbent upon me to remark that I do not, definitely and decidedly do not, believe in the standard-issue spiritual idea derived from Eastern philosophies and their offshoots that we are part of a great cosmic one and that everything will be hunky-dory if we submit to that view and if we submit to that great cosmic one. In my opinion, this way of looking at things and way of conceiving of oneself is a way to denying the infinite, of shutting yourself off from the possibility of the infinite, I agree with the contemporary French philosopher Alain Badiou in asserting that everything, including you, including me, is a multiplicity of multiplicities, ever-expanding, ever-evoking new possibilities, new definitions of things, and new worlds. Your life, this world, this universe, is always something to be transcended. However, I digress. The third step along the path toward loving, erotic, sensual synesthesia is meditation. But do this in consort, in harmony with your partner. You and your beloved should build your shared synesthesia together. It should be your and your lover's project, your and your lover's creation. As far as meditation is concerned, allow me to hazard a suggestion to it that a combination of meditation with Tantra and yoga would be a powerful synesthesia cocktail. Do you and your lover dare to taste it? Dare to quaff it fully? I dare you to. This podcast dares you to. How far can synesthetic love, synesthetic pleasure, synesthetic sensuality be taken? There are no limits. Can this project be undertaken by three individuals who are part of a loving, sensuous menage a trois? Yes. Yes, it can. Yes, it should. So these are my thoughts and the thoughts of others on the topic of synesthesia. Here's my recommendation of a love and relationship coach and a psychotherapist. Her name is Anita DiFrancesco, 
Her website is www.tantrawisdom.com. She's also on her Tantra Wisdom Facebook business page and her Love and Relationship Coach Facebook page. She is not only a Love and Relationship Counselor and Psychotherapist, she is a two-time National Award-winning journalist and the author of two excellent books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, which deals with matters such as the ones we discuss here in this podcast, mindfulness, sexuality, relationships, and so forth, and the Donna Gentili story, a spellbinding true crime thriller about the brutal murder of her first cousin and of her attempts to identify the killer. Both of these books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, and The Donna Gentili Story, are available on Amazon. Or check her website. Adoring and honoring someone you truly admire is an exponential pleasure, because in the process, you are also adoring and honoring yourself. I am sensitive and perceptive enough to understand and appreciate and love and adore my beloved special gifts, the things that are most marvelous and unique about her. True love of another is also the highest, best, and most exalted form of self-love. Love is in the now, in the moment, The thought of the one you love should fill you with transcendent joy. You should tingle from head to toe and immediately want to give them the universe. With that feeling, all of the neurotic lack of trust and self-doubt vanish like toxic dust blowing away in the wind. And you are left not only truly whole, not only truly yourself, but ready to become new self and to share those selves with your beloved. When two people are ready to take this journey together, it is magic. It is the greatest magic there is.